Amen? No? Hey, there we go. All right, good. All right. So, uh, like you, last night, uh, or like many of you, I was glued to the TV around 7 o'clock, um, watching my team. I was really excited. I was really nervous. Uh, I, I just felt there was a lot riding on this game. And uh, like you, it was a tough game to watch. I felt like there were so many opportunities we could have pulled it out. Uh, and honestly, at the end, when Pittsburgh beat Duke, I just did not think <laughs> that was coming. Oh, I'm sorry. Was there another, there was another game last night? All right. In fairness, I was actually watching the Packers game and not the Duke game. Uh, it was, a, it was a tough night. Uh, and uh, Amanda actually said this really well with our kids this morning. Um, but we care about these things because, like, all the ranking stuff matters, right? I mean, to stay with Duke for a minute, Duke was number seven in the country. We lost to unranked Pitt. I don't know what happens to us or where we end up in the AP top 25, but it's not going to be good, right? I'm nervous about that. Uh, we, we like to rank things. We, we like to know, like, who's the best and who's not the best, and we want to know who the greatest Green Bay quarterback of all time was, and we want to know um, who the best student in the class is. We want to know who the richest man in the world is. We have a phrase, the GOAT, right, the greatest of all time, because we want to be able to identify who that person is in all these different areas of life. Uh, I spent the last uh, couple of weeks listening to a, about a six-hour lecture series on the Viking Age and the early um, uh, Holy Roman Empire, the, the Frankish Empire. Uh, and one of the things that stood out to me is really interesting is that all of the rulers of the Holy Roman Empire all have an extra name. So we all know Charlemagne, right? Charlemagne is Charles the Great, and he's the founder of the Roman Empire, of the Holy Roman Empire. Um, but before Charles the Great, there was his dad, Charles the Hammer. It's a really cool name. Uh, and then after Charles the Hammer and Charles the Great, we get Louis the Pious. And okay, I mean, I think pious, I'm supposed to be excited about that because I'm a pastor, but not as cool as the Great. Uh, and then after Louis the Pious, we have Charles the Bald, which is, everyone knows, a synonym for greatness. And then <laughs> we have another guy named Charles the Fat who comes after that, and I don't know what to do with Charles the Fat. Um, I, even with, like, our ancient historical figures, right, we want to rank them and ca categorize them and decide who's the Great and who's the Bald and who's the Fat. And we do this like instinctively in our lives, right? We do this so often. Um, we want to know who the best student in our class is, who the best teacher in our school is, who's the best driver, who's the best mechanic. My grades are better than yours. My kids are better than yours. My lawn looks better than yours, right? Uh, and so naturally, we think about that in the church. Who's, my church is bigger than yours. My pastor is funnier than yours. And so, of course, the disciples ask this question, right? Jesus, who's the best? right? Who's your favorite? Um, who's the one who, uh, after you, I mean, hey, Jesus, we recognize that you're going to be the one on the throne. We all want you on the throne, but somebody's got to be like the right-hand man, right? Who gets to be that guy? Who, after you, gets all the accolades and gives all the orders? So, Jesus, um, because He knows what's up, teaches His disciples, hey, I'm going to die. This is the kind of Messiah I'm going to be. I'm going to die for others. And then they, because they don't get it, have this whole conversation about greatness. And then Jesus, they get to a house, and He says, hey, what were you talking about? Uh, and there is a good moment here. We, we rag on the disciples a lot, but there's a good moment here where they go silent. <laughs> Why do they go silent? 
because they know they're wrong, right? They know they're not supposed to be having this conversation. They know when they tell Jesus, we had an argument about who was the best disciple, He's not going to think that was a good use of their time, right? But they do it anyway. And, and here's the thing, I think so often when we can't understand or won't hear the truth, we fall back on the lies we know best. When we can't understand or won't hear the truth, we fall back on the lies we know best because there's some comfort in the familiar even when we know it's wrong. Right? It just feels good to think about who's the greatest. It's a system we understand. Some of us are Charles the Great and some are Charles the Fat, but we all accept that the system matters. It is a race to the top, except it's not for Jesus. And, and Jesus' frustration with the disciples doesn't boil over here as much as it does in other moments, but He's got to be thinking, hey, it's not just my example that you're missing. You're missing the whole example of the God of the Old Testament. I mean, the God of the Old Testament is this God who is majestic and powerful and creates the world and deserves all honor and praise. And what does He do to, to show His greatness? Well, Moses tells us a whole bunch of times, forgive the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love. What makes God great is not His power or His majesty or His ability to smite those that are wrong. It's His forgiveness. It's His willingness to let us do terrible things to Him and then not hold it against us. We have this amazing God who becomes great by becoming smaller than He was before He knew us. It's an idea that's so foreign, we just can't wrap our brains around it. This is why the disciples struggle so much. And so Jesus says, hey, I've got an illustration for you to help make this point more clear. And He grabs a kid and He puts him in the middle of them. I would love to know, like, some more context around this story. So, for example, are we to assume that at this moment, in addition to the male disciples, there are a bunch of female disciples and their children all sitting around listening to this conversation and that Jesus goes to one of the women who are watching the children and He says, hey, I'm going to borrow your kid for a second to make a sermon illustration? Or like, is there just like mass chaos going on in this house and children are just running through and Jesus just clotheslines one and says, hey, come here? I don't know. I love it. I love the image. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Jesus grabs a kid and He says, come here, little sermon illustration. He puts him in the middle of the disciples and He says, hey, whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. You have to serve people like this child. Okay, so a little bit of context here for us because today in our world, children are like the most important thing. Children represent um, purity and innocence and trust and faith. Like our lives are totally organized around our kids. This is not the case in the ancient world. In the ancient world, for the Jews and especially for the Greeks and Romans, children are subhuman. Okay, so if you're going to classify the importance of humans in the ancient world, you would say men, free men. Uh, usually free men of our people group, like Jews if you're Jewish or Greeks if you're Greek. And then you would say women and men of other people groups. And then you would say slaves and children. Slaves and children. So children were uh, the lowest form of human that you could be. 
Children were, uh, in the ancient world, seen as beings with no power, no wealth, no security, no autonomy, no reason. Uh, In fact, we could have a whole other sermon on this, but it is entirely because of Jesus that our world culture has changed, uh, that we have come to believe that children are fully human and in many ways the best of humanity. Um, That's a Jesus idea that is not common in His day. So when Jesus grabs this child… He's saying, hey, I want you to spend your time caring for the least important people you can possibly imagine. That's what greatness will look like in my kingdom. In the kingdom, greatness is not a race to the top, it's a race to the bottom. This weekend, I had the privilege of uh, celebrating the life of a family member of, of one of our church members. Uh, and uh, in that celebration, I got to hear some amazing stories about that family. One stood out to me. I'm going to change the name of the righteous for the sake of anonymity, and I'm going to call this person Bob. Uh, so, um, Bob was the ne- or is the nephew of the, his aunt who, who passed away this weekend. And... Um, his aunt had a really, really difficult life. Like, really, I'm not going to get into the details, but it was harder than you imagine. And um, she had, at the end of her life, early onset Alzheimer's. She knew what that meant because her father had died of Alzheimer's, so she understood what was going to come. And she went to her family. She said, hey, my one real request is I don't want to be put away. Like, as long as possible, can you please take care of me? So her nephew Bob, um, the whole family stepped up, but her nephew Bob really stepped up. Um, And for about three years, he was his aunt's full-time caregiver, like five, six days a week. And this was initially just a blessing for them both. They became like best friends. They spent all their time together. As her mental health deteriorated, he was in so many ways one of her rocks, like one of the places that she could go for stability and peace. But as that disease progressed, um, that role got harder and harder. And you can imagine um, what this means. Eventually, it means um, change in diapers, and it means dealing with the anger of someone who is so confused because they don't know what's going on anymore and they just take it out on you because you're there. And in the midst of of that incredible journey, Bob just kept showing up, kept loving on his aunt, kept reading Scripture to her every single day, praying with her every single day. And in the uh, later part of that journey, um, she um, forgot who he was, but never forgot what he did for her. So he would come in to take care of her, and she would say, oh, sorry, I can't help you right now, but if you just wait long enough, Bob will be here, and he'll make things right. There's no top ten list for that. There's no accolades, there's no trophies, there's no Christmas bonus, because it's a race to the bottom. It's a willingness to say, hey, I will do whatever it takes for you, 
and I will go as low as I have to go. Because that's what my Lord did for me. I have a few stories. Um, I've been told that leadership is repetition. I have a few stories that I want to try to tell often enough uh, until you guys can tell them yourselves. Uh, and so, one of those stories comes from uh, my favorite C.S. Lewis book. It's called The Great Divorce. Uh, and The Great Divorce is a story of a man who is in a uh, shadow world, it's hell, and he takes a bus from uh, the shadow world of hell to heaven. And in heaven, uh, he has a guide who leads him around, and they encounter all these people that are living in heaven like full time, right? This is like his opportunity to decide if he wants to be there or not. Uh, and so, uh, in this journey through heaven, one day he sees this woman, and, and she is so amazing, he's certain that it's Mary, the mother of God. And so, he turns to his guide and he says, is it, is it? And his guide says, not at all. It's someone you never have heard of. Her name on earth was Sarah Smith, and she lived at Golders Green. She seems to be, well, a person of particular importance. Aye, she is one of the great ones. Ye have heard that fame in this country and fame on earth are two quite different things. Who are all these gigantic people? Look, they're like emeralds who are dancing and throwing flowers before her. Haven't you read your Milton? A thousand liveried angels lackey her. And who are all these young men and women on each side? They are her sons and daughters. She must have had a very large family, sir. Every young man or boy that met her became her son, even if it was only the boy that brought the milk to her back door. Every girl that met her was her daughter. Isn't that a bit hard on their own parents? No. There are those that steal other people's children, but her motherhood was of a different kind. Those on whom it fell went back to their natural parents loving them more. Few men looked upon her without becoming, in a certain fashion, her lovers. But it was the kind of love that made them not less true, but truer to their own wives. And how… But hello, what are all these animals? A cat, two cats, dozens of cats, and all these dogs, why I can't count them, and birds and horses… They are her beasts. Did she keep a sort of zoo? I mean, this is a bit too much. Every beast and bird that came near her had its place in her love. In her they became themselves. And now the abundance of life she has in Christ from the Father overflows into them. I looked at my teacher in amazement. Yes, he said, it is like when you throw a stone into a pool and the concentric waves spread out further and further. Who knows where it will end? Redeemed humanity is still young. It has hardly come to its full strength, but already there is joy enough in the little finger of a great saint such as yonder lady to waken all the dead things of the universe into life. Mother Teresa says, we can do no great things, only small things with great love. This is the invitation that Jesus lays at the feet of the disciples. He says, give up on this greatness. Give up on this idea that you're going to compare yourselves to others and outdo them and be the most impressive in your field and be the most famous and have the greatest name that lives on beyond you on this earth. Give up on that stuff. It doesn't matter. Here's what matters. 
only to be like me. If you're seeking greatness, at most you will be great in this life. If you are seeking Christ, at least you will be great eternally. So Jesus comes to the disciples. He says, hey, I know you're tempted to this. I know you're tempted to rank yourselves. I know you're tempted to decide who's the best at everything and compare yourself to everyone, uh, but I want you to race to the bottom. I want you to be uh, in competition to be the last, in competition to serve the most. I want you to spend your life for those people that the world might forget. And then He says something else super interesting. He says, just as small acts of love make for greatness in God's kingdom, so too small sins can be pretty big in God's kingdom. Now, just as we are inclined to rank ourselves by our goodness in comparison to others, so too we're inclined to rank ourselves by our lack of badness in comparison to others. Don't we do this all the time? Oh, wow, I can't believe He did that. I would never do that sort of thing. Oh, wow, I, I, I know maybe I've made some mistakes, but I haven't ever murdered anybody. I haven't ever robbed a bank. I think I'm doing pretty well. Uh, and we just, we just say, oh, my stuff is so small, it doesn't even matter. So Jesus talks to the disciples and He says, hey, if you were even to make one of these least important people in the world stumble and fall into sin, it would be better for you if there was a millstone tied around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. He says, in other words, stop grading yourself on a curve when it comes to sin. Stop worrying about the evil in others so much and look at the evil in yourself. Uh, I, I do think that Jesus is, is speaking, speaking hyperbolically here. Jesus is not actually expecting us to cut off hands and feet and eyes. Feats hands and feet and eyes. Uh, Jesus uh, is absolutely aware that the Old Testament actually prohibits that sort of behavior, right? So, we have Scripture that say, don't mutilate yourself. I think instead Jesus is saying, um, instead of ranking yourself and your greatness by your lack of problems compared to others, um, take a real hard look at all those places in your life where your selfishness is showing up, and what would it mean to cut that out of your life? Uh, I had a, a friend who decided that the internet was a constant source of temptation for him. A lot of bad stuff on the internet. So, this friend decided that the only way to solve that was to ditch his computer. Uh, he uh, had a job that required him to type things a lot, so he actually went on eBay and he found a computer that was so old it didn't have a modem. I'm not kidding, they still exist. Uh, and he, he bought a computer on eBay that was that old. Uh, he couldn't get his email on it. He couldn't uh, do anything on it. Uh, he typed his um, work on that email, and then he literally went to the library. Uh, and he sent all his emails and sent in his work and everything he had to do um, from the library computer system. And people would say, oh my gosh, I cannot imagine not having a smartphone, not having a computer with the internet in your house. How do you live? And he would say, if your computer causes you to stumble, tear it out. It is better for you to live and enter life with no computer than with a computer and to be thrown into hell. What are those things in your life um, that are 
uh, we want to say really small, especially compared to others, that maybe Jesus is calling us to cut out today. Okay, this, this temptation to greatness um, comes back again and again to comparison, right? It's like, hey, I'm better than you, or hey, I'm less bad than you. Uh, and so, um, we get one really critical moment at the, uh, in the middle of this story um, where Jesus and the disciples have this uh, comparison conversation, and it's about this exorcist. Super weird, right? I, I, this is like one of my favorite stories in Mark because it's so strange. So, the disciples come to Jesus. Now, He's just said, I'm going to suffer and die, be like me. And then He said, stop arguing about who's the greatest. And He said, you know, race to the bottom. Let's, let's be humble. Um, he hasn't yet talked about cut out sin in your own life first. It's going to be in response to this. But they say, hey, Jesus, we saw this guy casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he wasn't one of us. Aren't you proud? Now, this is ironic for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, one reason is the last thing that happened in the Gospel of Mark, I don't know if you remember, the very last thing that happened is that when Jesus came off the mountain of transfiguration, He found His disciples, and there was a, a father with a son who was demon-possessed, and the disciples couldn't cast out the demon, remember, because they weren't even bothering to pray about it. And so, the next thing they do after failing to cast out a demon is like, hey, Jesus, we couldn't do it, but we didn't let that guy do it either. And then here's the second thing that just like rocks my world about this story. So, uh, if this guy in the name of Jesus is casting out demons and they stopped him, who wins? Well, it seems like the demons win, right? Like they get to stay. And how is that something they thought Jesus was going to be proud of, right? I mean, these guys we've discussed before, you know, you don't have to be super smart to be a follower of Jesus. I'm just saying. Um, so, <laughs> I'm not trying to rank them or anything. I think I just did, but uh, Jesus says, oh, guys, 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 I'm not interested in us beating the others, especially the others who are aligned against the enemy under the name and the banner of Christ. Like, your priorities are all messed up. You're so worried about being the best and being the most important. You're actually stopping people from doing good work in my name. Uh, there's this old story. You guys all know it. Um, uh, if you and your friends are running away from a bear, um, how fast do you have to be to run away from the bear? Faster than the bear? No, faster than your friends, right? That, that's the, the, the method is, you know, if I can run faster than my friends, the bear eats my friends, I'm good. And Jesus is like, this is insanity. The bear is the enemy, not your friends, right? We're, we're not in a competition with our friends. We're in competition with the bear. So, Boy, this has all kinds of application for us, but I think most significantly, as it emerges in this story, um, we and the church are so easily convinced that other churches are our competition, aren't we? We're so easily convinced that, oh man, like Presbyterians need to beat the Methodists, or Covenant's got to be bigger than all those other churches, or um, hey, we just, we just want to make sure that, you know, everybody recognizes you can have whatever Christian religion you want, but just, it's just that ours is the best is all that we need you to know. Uh, and, and this um, spiritual competition um, has these incredible um, negative effects in our world. Um, one of, my, um, one of the, the saddest historical stories I know, uh, in the 1200s, the Mongol Empire was conquering um, 
all over Asia. They took over China and, of course, Mongolia, and they made their way across um, what we would call the Middle East, and um, they um, were just just a monolithic space they controlled. Uh, and in the um, mid-1200s, um, Matteo Polo and later his son or nephew, Marco Polo, um, meet with Kublai Khan, the emperor of this mighty, incredible empire. And Kublai Khan is interested in Buddhism and Christianity. And he says, hey, would you go back to your religion, to Rome, to the church, and would you ask them to send 100 teaching missionaries to come to my empire and help teach us about Christianity? This is the emperor of the largest empire in the world um, saying, hey, send me missionaries, please. I'm interested in Christianity. So, Matteo and then later Marco Polo go back home, and they speak to Rome, and nothing happens because there are so many arguments going on in the midst of the churches and that time uh, that they cannot organize anything. It takes 28 years before the Christians can stop fighting amongst themselves to sing a, send a single man, let alone a hundred men, to the empire that's requesting missionaries. The story is after 28 years, when the one missionary they finally sent arrived, the empire, who was already retired, said, it is too late. I have grown old in my idolatry. See, Jesus wants us to recognize um, this quest for greatness that leads us so astray and our personal lives can also do that same damage in our spiritual lives and can do that same damage in our churches, that we are called to be a people who partner under the banner of Jesus with anybody who wants to call upon Jesus so that together we can advance the kingdom of Jesus. Uh, and I say this because um, I'm really excited to share with you that we're going to be working on that a little bit as a church. So, uh, I'll share in a minute. We've got a number of things coming up that are exciting in our church life, but one of those is that sometime in late February or early March, uh, we're going to start hosting another congregation in our building. It's not going to mess with our worship services. You may never even see them, um, but it's a congregation called Generations Church. They're not Presbyterians. It's okay. Um, uh, they're a church that has like 20 people that come and meet in a living room, and they want to start meeting in a space where they might be able to grow. And, and we are so excited to say, hey, you know what? Like, that's how we got started. When we moved out of the living room, you know where we moved? We moved to St. Mark's Catholic Church just down the road in Rothschild. We met in their basement for several years before we could go out of their basement and begin to have our own building and be like, you know, the, the people that we are now. And boy, what a privilege it is to help other churches do that, right? We don't care. I don't care if they're Presbyterian. I don't care if they dress like us or the music sounds like us. They love Jesus, right? And everybody wins when Jesus' name is exalted. Everybody wins when, in Jesus' name, evil is defeated. Everybody wins when, in Jesus' name, believers are baptized. Everybody wins because if we are in Christ, when Christ is exalted, so are we. When Christ gets made greater, so are we. The world wants you to think about your own greatness. The world wants you to be overly concerned about where you show up on every list and every ranking you can possibly imagine. The world wants you to be utterly unconcerned with your own small sins in comparison to everybody else. 
That's the temptation to greatness. But follow Jesus, for He will lead us not into temptation. Thanks be to God. Amen.